Welcome to the GC On Demand podcast, a show about people, about process, about technology, about community. It's great conversations with great technologists about things that matter to you, that matter to all of us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit gcondemand.io for all of the show notes. And with that, let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to the GC On Demand podcast. My name is Eric Wright. Uh, for those who are first-time listeners, welcome. And for those who have been uh, lucky enough to catch us before, uh, welcome back. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This is a really fun uh, episode we're going to start because we're sort of continuing where we left off. We were lucky enough in our last episode to chat with Randy Schaup. Randy, as as mentioned in the previous episode, a really, really powerful storied history in the industry. Uh, also, just awesome to talk to. Great stuff, uh, you know, on the technology. Real, f- We've covered a whole lot on the full stack, so I'll encourage folks, go back. If you're listening now, go back and listen to that half hour, uh, and it'll explain a lot of what we're going to talk about right now. But with that, Randy, welcome back. If you want to reintroduce yourself to the folks, tell us where we can find you online, and then we're going to get into talking about people, process, and map it back to some of the technology we talked about in the past. Nice. So thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me back. I'm happy to be back. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Randy Schaup. You can find me online at, at Randy Schaup on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me at Randy Schaup on LinkedIn. And if you Google my name, Randy Schaup, two words, you'll find a bunch of uh, talks and videos and interviews and blog posts that I've written about various topics ranging from you know distributed systems to scalability to DevOps to engineering culture, all sorts of stuff. Uh, so yeah, so um, I'm currently VP of engineering at Stitch Fix in San Francisco. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Stitch Fix in a moment, um, but I've been at Stitch Fix for a year. Um, previous to Stitch Fix, uh, I uh, was chief engineer at eBay for about six and a half years, and I helped to build out eBay's uh, search infrastructure. I did a stint at Google, uh, running engineering for Google App Engine. So that's Google's platform as a service, similar to uh, Heroku that people might be familiar with. Um, I uh, had my own little uh, startup briefly with an eBay colleague, so learned how difficult it is to start a startup. Um, And then I've been CTO of a gaming company here in San Francisco. It's it's really cool because of the different things that you've done throughout your career and going into a startup and doing all these things. You've you've worked in some very interesting organizations, which are really all, you know, a lot of it's wrapped around the increasing of the velocity of IT. And we talked in the last episode about a lot of the sort of the the ability to pick up a stack, get it for free, start building, you know, pay what you need as you go and Literally every layer of this, you know, full stack capability is is out there as some kind of a service. But what I'm very interested in hearing about is the people side of the world, because you know, Randy, you've done a lot on having to build teams that can adapt to the way of doing things that can make use of these tools. And that's why I'm always very, you know, it's like people, process, and technology as that methodology. There's a reason why it's in that very distinct order. You know, so I, I we did it backwards. We talked about technology first, and it, but I thought it actually will lay the groundwork for how you've used some of these tools 
and why it's important, because let's talk about people. How did you get to creating teams that became high velocity teams or, you know, this sort of idea of this DevOps engineer? Yeah, great. So uh, as we talked about last time, um, one of the things that I believe strongly and we do at Stitch Fix is um, we hire uh, we hire full stack engineers, so we're looking for we're looking for generalists, and we give those engineers full end to end ownership of the things that they build. So we organize our teams to, uh, around uh, full stack ownership of a particular area of the business, and we pair them with a particular area of the business. So um, let me I'll briefly explain what Stitch Fix does because that will motivate like why we organize the way we did. So Stitch Fix is an online clothing retailer. Uh, and we are turn we sort of turn retail on its head. So rather than going into a store, whether physical or virtual, and choosing the clothes that you want, instead you tell us the kinds of things you like. So fill out a pretty detailed, we say, style profile of you know your price preferences and colors you like and things you wear and you don't wear. Um, and then we will, uh, through lots of data science and lots of human elements. Um, to those things together, we will send you five items in a box that we think you're going to like, and you keep the things you like, and you return the things that you don't. Um, for every one of those uh, boxes that we have sent, and we've sent millions of them, uh, every one of those is cho is chosen by hand for that particular person by a human stylist. So we have a human, we have 3,500 human stylists all around the United States. Um, and every every item is sort of hand chosen for the particular person by that human. The way that that actually this business actually scales, though, is that those humans are in, are themselves kind of empowered or augmented by technology. So we have a ton of data science and algorithmic development that goes into making personalized recommendations for the particular client that the stylist is styling at the particular moment. Um, and just to give you a sense for like our um, investment and sort of how much we care about the data science side. Uh, our engineering group is uh, just about 75 engineers. Our, our data science group uh, and algorithm developers are 80. So we actually have a larger number of data scientists and algorithm developers that, as, than we do engineers. And as far as I'm aware, I think that ratio is unique. Uh, I for sure know that it's unique in the retail slash e-commerce space because I pretty much know all the players <laughs> in that space. But I'm but I'm I'm pretty sure. I mean, very happy to be contradicted, but I'm pretty sure that it's unique in the industry. Like I'm, I have yet to find another company that has more data scientists than they do uh, engineers. And we use those data scientists like everything about the our process. We try to be smart about. And like when I say smart, like we apply PhD people that do data and experiments and uh, and uh, drive things from uh, drive things from algorithms. So our business is, as all retailers, you know, so our business is, is divided up into merchandising, which in retail speak means the people that buy the stuff. So and for us, that means the people that actually buy the clothes. Um, and we have an engineering team that pairs directly with that team. So that build the build the software, build the tools that the merchandising team uses. We have um, we have physical warehouses. So we have five physical warehouses all around the United States, uh, close to where our customers live. Uh, uh, and we have built all of our own uh, warehouse software, all of our own inventory management software. Again, and we have a, we have a team of software engineers that builds um, and owns uh, those applications end to end. 
we have uh, maybe this, well, this is the unique part. We have the styling uh, uh, function, right? So at those 3,500 human stylists that are uh, deciding ultimately what goes in uh, what goes in the boxes. We have an application that we build, um, essentially an e-commerce application, if you like, because they're shopping on your behalf as client, if that makes sense. So those, uh, we, have a, we have an application that we build and maintain uh, for the stylist. Uh, and um, we have an engineering team that you know, builds and maintains that. Uh, and we have engineering teams that build the, uh, the website and the mobile app. And we have teams that build the um, applications for our customer support folks. And then we have a small but mighty platform team that's responsible for the underlying infrastructure that everything, uh, all those applications are built on. Um, so yeah, so I, that's my long-winded way of getting back to first order thing is organize your, organize with uh, teams with full stack end-to-end -end ownership of a particular vertical area of your business. And you know, Amazon, two pizza teams, right? Small teams, well-defined area of responsibility. They own a small number of applications or a small number of services, um, and they're responsible end-to-end -end, uh, for that. And uh, and then sort of the other dimension of that end-to-end -end responsibility was something that we talked about in the last session, which is um, the dev DevOps. And what I mean by that in this context is the same engineer that writes the code is also the same engineer that makes sure that the code works properly, that it performs well, and that it operates in the, in the environment. So we don't have, we have engineers. We don't have a separate QA team. We don't have a separate performance team. We don't have a separate ops team. Um, that has wonderful benefits in terms of the kind of reliability of the software, but that also is um, really motivating for the engineers that do it. Like when they go, there's nobody else. Like they go in and they own this application that they're building end to end, and that is super empowering um, and uh, and super motivating. So that's uh, that's one of the things that I believe uh, strong. That was a wonderful thing I sort of took away from the, the experience that I had at Google. Uh, it's a great thing about Google. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing about Stitch Fix. Yeah, and I, I definitely encourage people that to wrap themselves into this concept. One of the great books that I've read lately, and which is actually freely available online, is the the SRE, the Site Reliability Engineering book. It's an O'Reilly book, but it's available online in HTML format that was published by Google. And you can you can yeah. buy the the ebook version of or I've or a physical book if you're if you're old school like me. Um, and that and a lot of those concepts is and what's neat is there it's done in essay format and it, it kind of like reminded me of you know just so much of you know we've chatted in the past and hearing the like the story and relating how you did something it was like oh then it really maps the concept nicely rather than us going to like you know concepts of DevOps like no, no let's let's take a look at it like you just laid out a beautiful story about what we need to accomplish and then taking the people and mapping it back into to how that occurs and also another thing we talked about last time you you mentioned tdd so test driven development which is apparently a, a rarity i like everybody <laughs> thinks that they're doing it or they talk about it but i've I, I actually had this conversation with an engineer uh from my team recently and and they said like we keep saying that we're going to do test-driven development, but yet they keep saying, like, I don't have time to write the tests. I just need to get this code working. You're like, no, no, that's how you get the code working. Like, so, <laughs> oh, man. how does yeah, TDE, I don't have, I, how did you I, get it? How sorry. did you get everybody to embrace it? Like, it's, tell me about the successes of TDE and how you, how you nailed this down, Randy. 
Oh, sure, great. Um, I, I will openly and honestly say that uh, I, I mean, I've been here a year, as I said, the company has been around six years. Um, so the choice of doing TDD, the choice of doing continuous delivery, the choice of doing DevOps, those are things I came in to do, or I came in with Stitch Fix already doing it. And just to be open and honest, like that's one of the reasons why I came here is the kinds of things that I was, I guess the one thing I didn't say about my background is right before Stitch Fix, I was actually consulting and trying to help a bunch of startups and uh, larger companies as well, both in the US and internationally, um, scale their technology, scale their organizations. And Stitch Fix was already doing the kinds of things that I was preaching. So uh, that has that had wonderful properties and it was sort of a, 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 nice, uh, a nice synergy there. Um, but yeah, so how did people start getting to do uh, TDD? Well, well, one of, um, I guess two things. One is there's a wonderful tradition in the Ruby community, and the vast majority of our applications are sort of Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Um, what, there's a wonderful tradition of TDD within the Ruby community, and we just actually practiced it and continue practicing it. Um, the other thing, the, the related, you know, that it's not just sort of cultural coming out of Ruby is that it actually works. <laughs> um, and it can seem like overhead if you have never if you've never experienced the a joy and power of being able to make a change and then immediately run all the tests that you know make sure that you didn't break anything like if you've never had that epiphany that wonderful experience of that power um i encourage you to try to have that experience uh because it's amazing and so empowering to be able to um be able to uh, aggressively and confidently make changes and know that you have written sufficient tests to make sure that you haven't broken anything. Um, that's a huge part that I think is a bit unsung, but a huge part about, uh, uh, of the, about the Google engineering culture that I really liked is that you know, Google is really, they weren't always this way, but Google, um, Google now is uh, uh, wonderfully, um, wonderfully encouraging and sort of, expecting if you like uh, that that uh, engineers write write uh, tests that test whether the thing that they write is is correct um, and we do the same uh, so how do you get it how you get it is like you have to just give people a taste you know what I mean like if people haven't arrived with that uh, already having that uh, that taste um, then we that's an expectation that okay you know we're open and honest with people as they interview with our company is like we actually do TDD and so we, uh, that's part of the pair programming, that's part of our interview process, um, and it's a first order expectation of our engineers, and the kinds of people, you know, the kinds of people that uh, come join us are the ones that uh, either have done it and like to do it, or would like to do it and are excited about trying it. Nice. And, and I guess the other thing I would say is just to, um, that comes to my mind always, you know, you, I've, I've been in, I've definitely been in cases where like, no, we don't have time to do that stuff. Like I get it. Um, cause I've been in engineering management for a long time. Like, yeah. Uh, I, I totally get it. So here's what I say. When you tell me I don't have time to do it right. I ask you, do you have time to do it twice? <laughs> cause that is the choice. Yeah. If you do it right the first time, you don't have to go back and do it again, uh, and that is the that is the unlock. That is the that is the mental like click that you go, oh yeah, right, <laughs> and it and it is more work up front. No argument. Uh, but once you have, but uh, it is certainly more work the first time. 
once you have learned to do it, you will learn to do it quickly. And once you have built up the underlying foundation, if you like, like once everything else has the tests and you're just adding your one new feature and you add your feature, your the tests that just test that new feature, it's actually it's easy. Um, and uh, and the benefit is huge. The benefit is you as an as a developer, you know, feel em the empowered and uh, confident in being able to make uh, potentially radical changes to the to the code, which is uh, um, which makes you move faster, right? That's not move slower. That's move faster, right? I'm able to do more radical refactorings, more radical uh, additions of functionality than I would otherwise feel comfortable doing. Yes, you're um, you're investing now and you're buying velocity down the road like it, it's i guess it's just a weird cultural challenge that we face of like do i take the pain now that i don't know that i'm really feeling because it, it like there's no like I, I it really is truly a challenge and i i worked in and I've, I've covered a lot of teams in the operation side of the world and it's always funny we i watched a you know a ruby dev come in it was like ruby on rail shop and they brought in this guy and he's like oh this is james and james is all about tdd you know like four weeks later they're like yeah james has got to go because he's killing us because he's doing all this upfront work and we're not getting to like actually developing the features like no 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 because he's building the baseline and and those practices finally like it just you, you got to find that aha moment that that gets you to buy into it but and and i think that's Again, it's one of those things where we're getting better. We're starting to see it more in the wild and we hear more stories about it and we're seeing proven use cases because people are sharing the use cases. There's lots of conferences you can go to and uh, heck, it's all on YouTube anyways, like all the different, you mean you speak at a lot of conferences and and I've seen a lot of your presentations without having to be there, you know, it, which is really cool because just the, the data is out there. The stories are out there, and what's even more important is the other people that are doing this, they love to share their story, right? It's when you go to conferences and you talk to people, like the first thing that an audience member would come up and say, Randy, all right, so I've got this. They, I would, I would guess that if it's like what I go to conferences, they always lead with, so I got this really cool thing to work, and I want to tell you about it, and then I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. So, um, and again, um, yeah, it's wonderful to have it be, it is not as, it's not a widespread thing. It's certainly not as widespread as I'd like it to be, um, but it's not a unique thing, which, uh, which is great. Um, so yeah, like I say, just to, you know, to close on it, I guess you get the, con you get the confidence and the empowerment of being able to make radical changes to the code base and know that, know that you're covered basically, know that the tests have your back. And the other thing, and we have absolutely experienced this here at Stitch Fix, is you get high quality software out the other end, right? Um, so it's sort of building it right the first time rather than building it twice. And I'll give, and sort of, uh, this is a bit anecdotal, but we essentially, we don't have a global bug tracking system. Uh, it's not that we don't have bugs, it's that <laughs> we have small enough number of them that we don't have this huge backlog. Like mean, I have worked in, basically every other company we you know you, you have a product that you work on for a while and then you just have this huge backlog of bugs that you sort of accumulated over time and boy it sure would be nice to you know get to those things we don't have that that's not it's not that we wrote perfect software but we wrote a lot better software than even i'm used to at other places if that makes sense yeah and so um so as when we find bugs and we find them uh, as our users find them or you know we find them as developers 
we just fix them. You, and you fix them once. You don't fix them 10 times because you fix. You write the test. The test demonstrates whether you demonstrates the bug. You do the fix. The, tem the test verifies the fix. Done. The um, and the the um, the metaphor I like to use here, if I have to, you know, continue preaching to the hopefully converted, is um, is the uh, is a uh, is a ratchet. It's um, it's like imagine in the Alps, you, you know, they have those uh, those trains that go up the super steep slopes, yeah. right? And they kind of go up like for it seems like forty five degree angle. And the way that they do it, they like. The, if they just used regular um, uh, regular tires, it would it would slip. So they have this they have this ratchet. They have this. It's essentially like a uh, like a gear shaped thing that goes through. Uh, it's a rack and pinion. It's called, and the, it goes into this rack. And every time it goes forward, it kind of clicks in, and it means you can't fall back. That's what tests are about. Every time you find a bug, you write the test. Click. You went one step forward. You're never gonna have you're never gonna have that bug again, right? Because you're gonna catch it before it ever happens. Right. You find the next bug, you uh, write the test, click, you've moved one step for now, now you just keep moving farther and farther up the up the mountain. And um, we we get to live that here. And um, I, I just can't say enough good things about that practice. And I will also say an echo, like it is hard to get started. Like uh, from going from zero to enough tests to feel confident. Like I get that that's a big step. It's worth it, um, but I will not minimize the amount of effort both culturally and like actually writing stuff to, to get there. And, and I even encourage folks to do, this isn't just strictly a raw development, you know, application thing. You know, I, I've, in fact, I wrote about it years ago, I think, or it feels like years ago. I call it TDI, test-driven infrastructure. And let, when I would architect infrastructure, I do the same thing is that I build, you know, I build node testing as part of it so that when something goes sideways, like the first thing you should do is fail everything so that you understand the pattern of failure, the failure domains, the the net effect of it. And you make sure that the infrastructure monitoring platforms and all these different things that you're doing to make sure that it's alive, that they actually work because God help you. I mean, we had the classic the other day and it, I mean, this is a story that we will talk about forever just to make fun of the folks at AWS was that you know, they had this monstrous S3 outage. Of course, it targeted their you know, they're a complete globally distributed application environments. So everybody puts everything into US East one. <clears throat> and then, you know, S3 has has a situation in US East one. And you know, don't worry, just go to the AWS dashboard and the status dashboard will tell you what's down, except that the AWS status dashboard is running using assets that were hosted in US East one on S3. And and result was it wasn't updating like that there, there's going to be the oddities, <clears throat> but again, like you said, if you write those, if you if you let it fail and understand the result of failure, and then you fix it, literally with like a line of code, that's a pretty badass feeling. And I and I I would encourage anybody. I said even on the infrastructure side, look at the when you're doing anything, definitely think about the failure first, plan and prepare for it, and build it into part of your process, which is cool. Yeah, I love the test-driven infrastructure idea. Um, and if you had to take a step back, it's almost more important to do that for infrastructure than it is for applications, in all honesty. Uh, a, because typically the failure modes are worse, but B, the failure modes are so much less, uh, so much rarer, right? right. Um, 
like like you say, I mean, and I, I want to underline it because it's super important, making sure that you fail the thing and your monitoring catches it, right? Because we're not testing those uh, those odd failure paths. Like we're, you know, we're not testing those uh, uh, those rare occurrences um, because because they're what rare. Um, and you know, we did uh, at Google. One of the things that was wonderful about um, you know, App Engine is, an, is a piece of infrastructure. Yeah, platform as a service. Um, and we would write we would write lots of tests that would test really weird failure scenarios that could occur in the wild, but there was no way we could reproducibly generate them. Right? Like they happen once in a million, once in a billion times. But you can write an easy test to do that. Um, and and then you can make sure that your uh, the stuff that you build is resilient to that kind of failure. Um, so yeah, I mean, if we had to do it all over again, uh, Eric, we should do your thing. Like, man, test driven infrastructure first, right? I love it. Yeah, and it, it's it every time you try and remind people they're like, well, you know, do you really need that? I'm like, just stop for a moment and remember you've heard it somewhere. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is a test of the emergency broadcasting <laughs> system. Please ignore this test. This is only a test, right? There's a re like while we're irritated by those things, it, it ensures that it is doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, uh, so we need to make it a cultural part of of what we do as in in every side of the IT organization for sure. Now the other thing, Randy, you talk about the two pizza team, and maybe for folks that don't already kind of know what that's about. Talk about that and talk about not just what it is, but how do you know what happens when you outgrow it or what do you do when you scale that type of a team? Nice. Yeah. So uh, it's not my phrase. It's Amazon's phrase that I think credited to Jeff Bezos. But uh, the idea is um, two pizza teams. And the, the idea is that you should never have a team that's larger than can be fed by two large pizzas. Um, and the funny little corollary that my friends at Amazon like to joke about is, um, it actually has something to say about how many junior people you can have on your team because like the younger people tend to eat more pizza. So, you know, you kind of have to be, uh, be sensitive <laughs> to that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but yeah, so imagine what that is. I don't know, five to eight people. Um, and uh, you can see why that's a nice size for a team, right? A much smaller than maybe you, maybe you don't have all the skill sets covered or, you know, you can't... Um, uh, you can't cover as broad a broad an application or as broad a service. Much larger than um, than that, uh, the communication overhead within and among a team tends to sort of outweigh the um, to become becomes a larger and larger component uh, of um, of the cost, if you like. And so, yeah. So when um, and think about startups, right? Like startups are super fast moving when everybody fits around a conference table, i.e., two pizza team. Um, when you get larger, when you get two times in size, four times the size, whatever, um, then you want to start splitting up into smaller teams and giving those people particular, those individual teams, particular areas of responsibility, responsibility that they can own end to end. Um, so as you scale, as Amazon scales and as Google scales, um, and these are good examples because they're both really big companies. They do great technology and they're, and they're super nimble, right? Uh, Amazon is releasing, you know, gets faster as they get bigger. Google gets faster as they get bigger, not slower. Why? It's because they don't make, they don't construct themselves as one big top-down company. 
they construct themselves as, you know, in Google's case, whatever, something on the order of 15,000 engineers, like that's, it's not a 15,000, it's not like one 15,000 person organization. It behaves like what? A hundred, you know, a thousand or let's say 3,000 five person organizations. Right. Um, and that's exactly how it's set up. And that's how you can scale because you just add more small teams as opposed to making teams bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and you know, if people listen, do anything in infrastructure, like horizontal scaling versus vertical scaling, man, like that's what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about more individual small things rather than making bigger and bigger and bigger things. Um, you know, you can't, you can't do a discussion with, of team size in a technology context without mentioning, uh, Conway's law. So oh, yes. Mel Conway in 19, yeah. We're almost going to do that. We're almost going to, you know, not do that. Uh, so yeah, Mel Conway, software uh, software engineer in 1968, uh, posited this uh, this observation where um, he said that architecture tends to follow organization, or in particular, he said that the architecture that you build ends up mirroring the communication paths in your organization. So the flip uh, corollary, which I think is credited to Eric Raymond, is something like, yeah, if you have four teams and you're building a compiler, you're going to build a four-pass compiler. <laughs> um, so, uh, so how does that apply to, you know, uh, small teams and building, uh, uh, building sort of modular, uh, components, microservices, et cetera, in the modern world? Um, you, rather than, if you have one big, you know, 50 person team, you're going to build a monolith. <laughs> but if you have 10, five person teams, uh, you're much more likely to build something that's modular and uh, reusable and you know componentized, um, and that's just the way that people tend to work. So uh, Conway intended his law to be an observation, right? That was an observation about what he saw, but you can also use that in like a normative way, um, uh, like use it to your advantage. So form the organization. If you want an architecture of modular components, which I think I hope that we all do, form your organization in that way, and and that's the architecture you're going to get. And I think you've you've really like that that phrase just nails it right there. When we start, don't think about what you've got, but it's like what's the original intent? And I don't think anybody goes into anything with the intent of building this. Like, you know what I want to do? I want to build a really slow-moving, <laughs> monolithic IT enterprise. Yeah. So like, no, no. So as you identify that this has occurred, find the right way to to break those. And and like, I like that we talked about this as being kind of a what's the communication overhead of building a larger team, and. Uh, so one example I know that's interesting in company style is uh, is pivotal in that there they do not have meetings. Period. Like there's no meetings, but what they do have is every single person in the company has a, 50, a fifteen to twenty minute morning stand up every day, and every single person you know has this quick little thing. Now of course, granted, like every person given the size of their their company or whatever, but still that that idea of like the stand up. You know, it's like quick to the point, you know, let's not put all this monolithic stuff wrap around in what we do. And then you work throughout the day in those small teams. So the communication becomes key. So, Randy, you know, when you think, think about communication, this is one last thing I want to touch on. You know, you, you live and work in San Francisco. And this is my favorite thing. I remembered 
they were hiring for Slack and they, I think it was for Slack and they wanted to hire somebody for Slack. And it said, right. And like, basically you're building a global, you know, unified <laughs> messaging platform must live in the Bay area. And I thought this is, this is counter to it. So what do you do when your two pizzas are spread across time zones, locations? How do you deal with people in remote situations? Oh, great. Uh, I, that's great because, and I'm, uh, so I am sitting here in San Francisco, um, which is where, you know, Stitch Fix, is head, Stitch Fix is headquartered. More than half of our engineers are remote. So we have a hugely uh, remote, uh, friendly engineering culture. Um, and I think that works very much to our advantage. Um, how do we get it to work? Uh, because we are majority remote, um, everything is oriented around making it possible for people to, to work uh, separately. So we use Slack, that global messaging you know, system yeah. that, you, that <laughs> you mentioned. We, uh, we do video chats. Like basically every meeting that we do, we have a video, uh, we do it over video chat. Um, and uh, we do uh, remote pairing with a screen hero. Um, all of our, you know, we, like I mentioned in the previous thing, you know, GitHub and uh, all the software and infrastructure as a service things that we use are all accessible all from everywhere. Um, so, but but the fact that um, the fact that the culture and the organization um, assumes that we need to make bring the remote people in makes makes that all work. Um, the failure mode that people have probably experienced is the most people are co-located, but there's one guy that's somewhere else, and like. That doesn't work. And it's not that it doesn't work because people maybe forget about that person, but because humans, if we're all in one place, like we're just going to talk in a high bandwidth water cooler way and we're going to forget to, you know, update that other person. And so um, the advantage, and it really is an advantage in all honesty, the advantage of having a remote engineering team is you... um, uh, is that everything is done in that way. And so that makes that has nice properties for me. Uh, I work from home uh, at least one day a week, even though it's not too far for me to come to the office. Um, and that has nice properties. Um, we, uh, we currently employ people all around the United States. Um, and, we, and we actually can make the time zones uh, be an advantage for us because uh, our warehouses, our five physical warehouses are located all around the United States and they start at 6 a.m. East Coast time, which is 3 a.m. for me. But there are people in, that work, uh, that build the warehouse software and, and work on one of my teams that live right there in that time zone. So they're they're able to uh, be right there and help. Um, and then uh, we actually have a couple, uh, have, have had and will ha- continue to have people in Hawaii, which is yet three, uh, three um, hours the other direction. Um, and you know, those people can be are uh, awake later in the day and can, you know, follow up on things that have already been started. So, you know, you can absolutely make, te- uh, make, um, uh, make time zones work to your advantage. Uh, one thing that I'll say for, um, if you have international teams, um, which we absolutely did at Google and we absolutely did at eBay, the way I've seen that work is the way I've seen that not work is treating the international location as like a job shop like let's have everything decided you know everything important is decided at headquarters and then we kind of parcel out individual tasks to people around the world right that does not work it is not motivating for those people they have no agency they have no ownership 
Um, and that is a net negative in all honesty, no matter how many great people that you might have, you know, in Shanghai or Bangalore or whatever. What does work is Google's model where, um, uh, where if you can find, I mean, Google's, Google has over a hundred offices. If you can find an engineering, a, a university that has good computer science graduates, you will find a Google office right next door. <laughs> um, true story. Um, they do not have this job shop model. They have an end-to-end -end ownership model. And it kind of comes back to where we started here, where the people that work on in the Warsaw office, like they own a couple of, you know, they own services that they maintain. Uh, and the people in the Zurich office, ditto. And the people in the Tokyo office, ditto. Um, so that takes advantage of people being local, you know, to each other and having high bandwidth communication within the team. And then between the teams, it's an API, right? It's, right. you know, have well-defined areas of responsibility and, and, you know, interfaces between between the teams when you cross uh, cross oceans and continents. Um, and that works, that, that takes, that that's the best of all worlds, right? Like that takes advantage of, you get the time zone advantage of like 24 seven, you know, follow the sun kind of stuff. And uh, people have local ownership that you know they really they really care about the things that they're building and um, and they're empowered to do it. That's awesome. And I I just realized that you're you're going to get a lot of calls for people like going to stitchfix.com slash careers yeah. and saying like, wait, you hire in Hawaii? <laughs> I think that's the way, that's the gem that someone's got to pick out of this conversation. Like, wait a minute, I can work in Hawaii for this company. This is great. Um, this is Aloha, really cool. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, definitely you there's challenges amongst it. You know, this has really been cool, Randy. I want to thank you for sharing sharing these stories and 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 sharing these ideas with us. You know, definitely there's as more and more people are moving into this style of work, I, I'm finding it more broadly accepted. Uh, conversely, you're seeing some companies that are that are getting people and they want them to come home. You know, so there's there's going to be swings, there's going to be shifts. And, and that's, again, a, a, I think a cultural challenge that we face in some organizations where they, you know, for whatever reason, they feel the need to, you know, kind of latch on to stuff. I actually worked in one company where we had acquired another company and they were literally like 100 kilometers away or 60 miles for my friends south of the 49th. Uh, <laughs> and so, but it was literally like working for two different companies. And as soon as people moved from one location to the other, they became like the people that were surrounded. Like it was a, they obviously adopted the local, you know, and I local as if it was like in another country where they eat different foods, like no, but it was, you were, you were surrounded, as you say, by this sort of high bandwidth capability to communicate. And so you obviously start to map to some of the processes and, and things that are in that, that local region. So it's, there's definitely, there are challenges when we're um, predominantly, you know, in this culture of presence and they want that physical closeness. And then yeah. you start to try and go remote. I think that's definitely where we are seeing people kind of struggle with it. But <clears throat> if you embrace it, you know, I've seen successes in it and, you know, I'm a, I'm a proof of success in it, even in an enterprise organization, I was able to be remote from my team and it, you know, it had its challenges, but there, there are definitely ways to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you said, you, you said the, the, 
the word which I'm going to use next time I talk about this, presence. Uh, and, and that's what, again, the other wonderful thing about being here in 2017 is it's really easy to be, to have presence and be remote, right? So Slack is a great example. Again, video chat, uh, all those things are enabled by, you know, the internet and everybody having connectivity, hopefully high bandwidth connectivity, um, to the network. And that is very different from even five years ago, but certainly 10 or 20 years ago, right? It's very different. Um, and so people can feel much more like one team, and we do feel like one team, even though we're spread over the several time zones of North America. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, that's great. Like, we're even more able to do that today than we ever were. Yeah. I definitely another one. I'll I'll just put in a plug for a couple of great books that I've read that are related to it that you probably know is uh, from and especially coming out of the Ruby and Rails community. You'll know you'll know DHH of course, David Hanemeyer Hansen. Uh, so totally. uh, the Thirty Seven Signals crew, which is now Basecamp, whatever. God, it, I need a scorecard to keep track of what they call it. But Jason and and David wrote two books. One is called Rework, and the other one is called Remote. Very great you know, sort of small mini essay versions of, you know, how to find successes in changing the way that you work and especially in being able to be a good, successful remote staffer. It's, it's pretty cool. And, and they they map to the, the process themselves. Well, Randy, hey, this has been great. Uh, definitely, you know, I look forward to another opportunity where we can chat and we'll catch up down the road, hopefully at an event. Uh, how do folks find you uh, if they want to get in touch with you and how do they find out some of the things that you're working on, you know, at Stitch Fix and elsewhere? Yeah, great. So, uh, so Randy Schaup, you can find me on Twitter at, at Randy Schaup. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn at Randy Schaup. Um, and then if you Google my name, Randy Schaup, obviously two separate words, uh, you'll find a bunch of uh, conference talks that I've given, interviews, blog posts, et cetera. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty easily easily found up, findable. Yeah, this is why I'm Disco Posse, because there's a lot of Eric Wrights. Randy Schaup definitely wins the originality. Randy, this has been great. Thanks for sharing this with, with all of our audience. And yeah, definitely, folks, uh, I encourage you, visit, uh, watch some of Randy's talks, go to Stitch Fix and, and uh, get yourself stylized. That's a pretty cool. I, I'm definitely going to dig in a lot more on, on what you as a company are doing. That's pretty cool to hear. Yeah, and you did you did jokingly refer to stitchfix.com slash careers that actually exists and we're hiring. Nice. So, uh, and we're hiring remote, you know, people in San Francisco, people all over the United States. So yeah, come join us. Nice, excellent. Well, thanks very much, Randy. All right, take care. If you like what you heard here and want to hear much more, don't forget to subscribe to the GC On Demand podcast. You can go to gcondemand.io where you'll find the links in order to catch us in iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and more. So go to gcondemand.io. Don't forget to rate us in your podcaster of choice and look for much, much more. Have a show idea? Tweet us at GC On Demand. Thanks for listening.